So I'm Scott Morris, and I'm here with Rabbi Micah Greenstein, Joy Marseille, Joshua Narcissa, and the one and only Kurt Quaylem. And I am here to welcome you to the mystic. So what is the mystic? It's not Muslim prayers on Friday, Jewish prayers on Saturday, or Christian prayers on Sunday. The mystic is a catalyst through music, story, silence, and dialogue. We hope to strengthen our attachment to hopes and dreams. In the mystic, diversity is a prerequisite for all creativity, which is why a Crosstown Concourse is the perfect home. In the mystic, the world is far better served by different beliefs than it could ever be if limited by rigid uniformity. And even if this doesn't rock your gypsy soul, the goal of the mystic is not to feel better, but to get better at feeling. I ask that we are filled with the strength to open our hearts and treasure the differences that distinguish us. And may the music of compassion, kindness, spirit, and insight fill this hour. What a pleasure, a joy it is for me to take part in this um, beautiful conversation uh, for lo these many months. And for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time, hello, welcome, bienvenidos, and uh, bienvenue, and uh, all of those words just to let you know how, how special it is for us to share this space with you where we, we kind of peep above the hedges of um, our you know, faith traditions, our culture, we peek above the hedges to try to understand each other a little bit better and try to grow and move forward. And as Joshua said, to get better at feeling. This is a good thing. And um, it's, it's needed in ways that perhaps 
um, aren't so obvious to us in Memphis because, and in Tennessee in general, because after all, you know, we're all churchified. <laughs> so, you know, we, we don't need nobody to tell us how to do anything. And that, of course, is the um, completely wrong way to live. So here we are in a more humble posture, spiritually speaking, religiously and, and culturally speaking, uh, in this circle. Um, and, and we have all grown from and benefited from, from doing that. In particular, hopefully you were tuned in last week, uh, last month, but if not, um, we t you can go back, it's, it's um, archived. We talked a little bit about LGBTQ, um, the existential kind of space that we're in as a country and as a culture globally around those issues, and as well just in general, um, you know, gender and sexual identity and those types of things, and how do they impact our lives um, in this spiritual plane? As you know, um, as you probably know that that you know the average mainline church or synagogue or or mosque you know there's some pretty hardcore ideology slash dogma um, around sexual issues and in general <laughs> but then when you drill down a little bit uh, into this area of people human beings who um you know, whose propensities, who, whose affinities, affections, attractions uh, are, are to the same sex, et cetera. And, you know, I can only, and I'm hoping that I will inspire my fellow panelists here to share just a kind of little bit, the thumbnail of, of the journey that, that brought us to where we are right now on that issue. <clears throat> I can start by saying that, you know, I, I just finished Barack Obama's book, which, which in essence is the first, you know, his first term uh, in office. Uh, and it was 700 pages. So <laughs> the second one is probably going to be a thousand pages. Um, but I'll say that one of the things that I respect about him is his um, willingness to, um, to um, grow to evolve publicly on different issues, and in particular, this particular issue. Um, and so I can say, uh, you know, in unison with him that, man, that's me. You know, I grew up in a fundamentalist uh, uh, environment, and, you know, the, this dichotomy of growing up around lots of people, or at least plenty of people who identified at least, I don't want to say identified as, but who were for all practical purposes LGBTQ, but at the same time in an environment where that was absolutely not kosher, it wasn't accepted. And so um, my thinking was nurtured in that uh, environment. And and so, yeah, I, I can look back and, and on some things that I said as a, as a young person, you know, uh, with not even half a brain, but sort of a developing quarter of a brain, that I truly regret about that, about the issues, of, about people who 
uh, were gay or, or whatever. And so to fast forward, because I don't have time to go into all of my, my journey, but just to say that, well, briefly to say that the two guys who, who babysat my brothers and me uh, were a gay couple. <laughs> and, you know, while my father pastored a church where I'm fortunate that, that, I, that he wasn't the kind of pastor who, who would rail against people who were gay, right? Um, but it just wasn't brought up. But you could easily go within a, a, a three-mile radius of where we were there in Orange Mound and find plenty of pastors who would rail against people who, who were gay um, in, in, in really disgusting terms. Um, but, but here's my personal reference two guys with whom today I am still extremely close who are now in their early 70s, still together, not married, but still together, having lived together for 40 plus years, if not 50. And, you know, yeah, just to say that my understanding of, the, of all of this is its own paradox. And that's why I need to hear from, from the, the rabbi. Well, I'm just so glad you, you got personal. Um, this is the last mystic where we can speak of the last president being Barack Obama. I mean, I was just thinking that since it started three years ago, he was always, and here we are in January, but last month, we talked about that verse from Ecclesiastes. We didn't even say the verse. Ein chadash, tachadash, There's nothing new under the sun. This whole gender identity, sexual identity thing, we think is new. But we talked about how the rabbis pointed out that Genesis verse that in the image of God, male and female, he created them. The suggestion is that Adam himself was androgynous. It's a radical idea, but it goes back 2,000 years. And so what I love about not just this group, but the way you opened it up, is it's no longer a theoretical conversation about gender identity or sexual identity. The question I'd want to ask, I mean, you had caretakers who happen to be gay, is, is this. What if you're raising a child named Jack? And then the child says, I'm not really Jack, I'm Joy. And you think you're raising a son, but you're really raising a daughter, and it's the same person. Hmm. Or, as a rabbi, I have a member, amazing couple, they were engaged, and she broke off the engagement because she had to tell her fiancé, a male, I love you, but I'm gay. <laughs> so you talk to the parent of that bride, and the parent is the most open person like we all are, or many of the listeners. Sure, I'm an open person. But it just kind of changes your whole mindset. Like, I didn't think it was going to be this way. And what about grandkids? Well, of course, you know, you could say, well, of course you can adopt but easy for you to say, 
as a pastor or as a counselor until it's used. So I really appreciate you mentioning your story because I think this is the first time in history where we can be this open about it and talk about it, even though some people still demonize and make it seem like it's always been male, female, or straight. I just wanted to throw that out. Um, what I'm, what I'm hopeful about is hearing the story of who all these children of God are, whether last week, what was it? Cis, straight, Hmm. hetero, Hmm. gay. But I empathize with people who are open. It's kind of, it's bad, I'll, I'll end with this. COVID only affects you when it hits you. <laughs> mm. When it hits you, it's all different, right? Mm. That's a bad example because that's about death. This is all about life. This is about people being who they are. And I find that there's a lot of discussion on this topic, even on radio shows, <laughs> but not enough of the sharing of me. Somebody on this panel, um, uh, we're, we're talking about it, but there are many listeners who probably are, gay, lesbian, trans, who understand. Joy, would you react to what I said? Because you're the one who brought it up last time. Yeah. um, Ironically, this is not the point of what I'm about to say, but my husband and I are actually expecting, which is great. Yeah, Not the point. (laughs) All right. We're announcing it to the world, I guess. Yeah, announcing it to the world. Um, Kirk is an excellent name. I'm just mentioning that. <laughs> we'll put that on the docket. It means church. I mean, you know. <laughs> um, and in that, actually, that's been a big um, a question or something that we've been discussing is how we want to raise our child. And um, we're waiting to find out the gender and the purpose. A lot of that purpose is for exactly that, that there's with um, understanding or expecting – with expecting a child, regardless of who that is, right? Whether you have a son, a daughter, whether you expect them to be gay, expect them to be straight, whatever. You just have all these expectations, you know? Like, um, it's going to be a football player. He's going to, like, I'm an actor, so he's going to act too. Or, like, she's going to be, like, the most drama queen because I'm a drama queen. Or, like, whatever. Like, you have all these expectations. And I feel like the big issue that you're getting, like, I mean, kind of that you pose is that it's not so much, I, I think what people struggle with is less so much like, oh, this is a whole different person, and more so about the expectations. Interesting that we're talking about, you know, what you see is not what you get. You know, I think, you know, that that's a just a, a really good, you know, axiom. <laughs> you know, just chill. What you see is what you see, okay? Just don't, don't have to figure everything out. But uh, one of the songs that... Uh, that I performed on this forum, um, it, it was written by a, the same guy who wrote "I Can't Make You Love Me." Um, it's called "In This Life," and and it's one of the most tender melodies and lyric that I've ever encountered. And this guy, who sits at the piano and writes these amazing songs, his hands, one of his hands is twice the size of mine, and his, you know, he's six four. 300 pounds because he used to play football. He was, he was with the Rams, you know, uh, well, one of those teams, but uh, Mike Reed. And so again, this is just one, one example of, you know, well, who writes a tender song? Well, (laughs) 
the person who raised who's in that in their heart, you know. But I wanted to go to you, Scott, just to talk about, you know, we're having this conversation, and you know, you're closer to seventy than most of us. So, uh, you know, maybe really? I'm, am I really? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I'm just wondering, you know, how, how would this conversation uh, have taken place when you were Joy's age or when you were Josh's age? I don't know that we would have had this conversation. I mean, I, um, yeah, I, I don't, in fact, I'm pretty sure I never had this conversation. I, I, I talked last month about these two women who I was dating both of them and not they were not simultaneously, <laughs> but they were having a relationship with each other. And it was like news to me. I mean, it never crossed my mind that, that something like that could be happening. Um, you know, I, yeah, growing up in the 60s and in the 70s, uh, y- you would uh, say things like, you know, accusing somebody of being a homosexual. But for the most part, I didn't really think that that was the case. Um, but I j- here just recently, um, I've gotten to reconnect with somebody I did go to high school with who, um, uh, it turns out, back in high school was gay for whatever reason, uh, you know, we never really connected to each other. Uh, Partly he was the smartest person in my class. That's probably one reason, but, you know, (laughs) I saw myself as an athlete, Joy, and um, he was an artist in some ways, and we just never connected. Now, here in the last few years, it's like, why were we not best friends? I mean, I have so much in common with him, far beyond what I had common with people who were quote-unquote athletes. You know, he and I think in similar ways. We care about similar things. You know, either one of our sexual orientation, I don't think makes a hill of beans difference to either one of us now. But back in 1972, when we graduated from high school, we hardly knew each other. And and I, it feels like I missed something just huge in my life. And and knowing that person, and and you know when you speak, you know about about that state of you know, you know you say, well, I just said no. Uh, it reminds me, and I'm going to ask you some, Josh. That it reminds me that all of us, to one extent or another, are sheltered. The first, you know, first segment of our lives, you know, and. You know, those of us who grew up in really religious homes are sheltered in a different kind of way. And I'm Mm -hmm. just wondering, what does that say to you in terms of this issue? Mind you, Joshua's a 20-something here. so uh. (laughs) I'm a 20-something here um, who's a Presbyterian who went to Catholic school for eight years but has family who were holiness Pentecostal in New York, but before that were... uh, Backwoods Baptist in South Carolina, um, like found, helped found the church, uh, saw the name on the plaque when we buried my great uncle. Like that's the kind of religious history that I come from. And um, we were kind of speaking earlier, even in New York, the way, particularly around masculinity and expressions of masculinity, there was no way to show affection or care for another man without having to or or automatically putting up a defense mechanism 
um, in the community I grew up in, we would say no homo, right? So we say, I love you, uh, bro. I love you, man. No homo. Because I don't want you to think that there's something gay about me because being gay in, in that context is wrong, right? Like a disclaimer. Um, also want to own that as a cishet male, my ex my my experiences are limited, right? And so I've I've not lived that the, uh, that experience. Therefore, I'm talking about it from the periphery, from the outside. But growing up in that in that cultural context, in that religious context, um, it was that being gay is just wrong. It's a thing to be fixed. It's a thing to be overcome. Um, and I can remember wrestling with that throughout high school and then wrestling with it in college on the way to seminary thinking, I might be asked to marry a gay couple at some point. What do I do? Right? That's the great hypothetical. That's what I'm all worried about until first, second year of seminary, I come home for the holidays and I'm, you know, all excited. I go to Yale now. I'm happy to see the family. And um, my mom starts talking about my sister's friend. That and she's fussing at her because she's always on the phone with her when she should be studying. It's like her first year in college. And this is my middle sister, incredibly, her and I share an incredibly close relationship. Um, and I start to notice uh, what my mom's saying about them spending a ton of time on the phone or FaceTime together because they don't do text messages or calls, they FaceTime. Um, and I start to just pick up things. And I see that she's a screensaver on her phone. And at this point, I'm just kind of waiting for her to tell me, to confirm what I think I already know um, and, and live into my expectations, right, of what I expect is, is about to happen. And, you know, holidays are coming to a close. She doesn't say anything. So I pull her aside. Uh, we're actually in our childhood room together. And I'm like, Rizzy, that's my nickname for her. What's, what's going on? Like, tell me the truth. And she starts to cry. Right, because she's so afraid to admit that she's bisexual. And not to make the story about me, but what hit me in the gut was that I didn't realize that I I thought I was a safe space for her. Mm-hmm. I thought I was someone she could trust. I thought I was someone that she would be more than happy to express her full self with. And to realize that that wasn't the case rem- told me that I had a lot more work to do in terms of being the kind of advocate and big brother that I want to be and that I thought I would be. Um, And so kind of, I guess, bringing it all around, religiously, culturally, the weight that we put on people, he was saying, Joy, with the expectations that they did not ask for, did not earn, but they inherit, that weight that we put upon them, how much is lost by forcing them to throw those off in order to be themselves? Um, I think there's a disservice that's done when we leap a heap upon one another expectations that just don't fit as opposed to allowing ourselves to be fully dynamic and fully children of God. I I like the dynamic uh, part. Kirk, lead us into our our song here. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I like the dynamic part. That's the perfect um, segue. Uh, Part of, I think, one way of looking at this whole scenario, this whole issue has to do with language like you know those of us who are unfortunate to to have been raised in a country where there was only one language primarily you know or at least one accepted and there was no push to learn more languages we see the world we understand the world in that language 
But when we begin to learn other languages, and I'm fortunate to speak Spanish at least not when he's around, not when Johnny's around, but uh, I speak French. And so now I still know the same world, but I know it in at least two other languages. It's the same world, but it's expressed simultaneously <laughs> in these other languages. And I think there's a metaphor for that in what we're talking about. And so speaking of that, I'm going to ask my dear friend from Colombia, uh, Johnny Pineda, to introduce this next song. Thank you. He's our special guest to play with us today. I come from a culture that um, we're very romantic, so you can see the love on the streets. You see couple kissing um, each other, and, and uh, this song is about love. So if I love you, you're gonna love me more, and then I'm gonna love you some more, and then you're gonna love me more, and then I'm gonna dream about you, then you're gonna dream about me. I mean, it goes <laughs> on and on. So it's called it's a song written by the Maestro Roby Draco Rosa, Mas y Mas. Te acercas un poquito más Te meterás en mí Más Si te sueño más Ya no podré dormir Nunca jamás Así Susurrándome Tú Te vienes a mí Se llenará de verde agua de mar Verde que me pierdes Más y más Si más te quiero, quiéreme Mucho más Más y más Dentro de mí Quiero, quiere ver mucho más. 
Kirk, where'd you find this guy? Oh my God, amen. Wow, man, that wow. was something. Crosstown Arts is this uh, <laughs> Kirk School? Uh, that somewhere. was amazing. Man, that was awesome. I can't take any credit for that. That's like Johnny Pineda uh, exist, existia muy, um, you know, increíblemente antes que yo lo conozco. So he existed long before. I knew about him, so I'm just In Memphis grateful. Memphis or Bogota? Uh, yeah, claro, claro. I'm glad our paths crossed. So thank you, Johnny Pineda. Gracias. Yes, Johnny. Bravo. So, you know, one of the things I think about with this whole issue is the fact that there are people who are well-meaning and who are just great people, great human beings, who will sit in front of someone who has identified as something other than what, you know, that person expects or whatever, and they will say the following, well, but the Bible says, okay, the Torah says, the, the, the Talmud says, the the, you know, Quran says, etc. And so that's where I want to, you know, start with you, Scott, just to ask you to speak to that <laughs> predicament. <laughs> yeah, so, and it is a predicament, y'all. So, um, uh, look, first off, the mystic is about this very issue. You know, every discussion we have at the mystic is about trying to ask where, where does the faith community um, you know see these questions these issues try, trying from among the five of us to ask these hard questions um, you know what what I in my heart of hearts know because I've, I've read the Bible a lot uh, the Bible virtually never addresses this issue I mean there are like five different passages that are just in passing in in the Bible that addresses particularly the issue of homosexuality, and it doesn't really address what people say the Bible says. You know, Solom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of the failure to care for the stranger. Solomon and Gomorrah were not destroyed because of issues of homosexuality. No, I mean, that, that is not even part of the, the rabbi can explain that to you better than I can. But the same thing's true in the New Testament. I mean, the, the, these issues where sexuality comes up, it, it's all about abusing power. Hmm. It, it's not about abusing love. The, the New Testament is crystal clear that love is what rules the day. And yet, somehow or another within our faith community, we have figured out a way to turn it into a weapon. And, and yet, the other thing that, you know, the five of us, we're, we're all heterosexual. 
And after our last session, the, the question came up, well, how come we did not invite somebody who has gone through this from a religious perspective into the conversation? And I felt like, well, God, man, we're talking about it. We're talking about it, but in like, when does it, isn't that good enough that we're, we're talking about it? But, you know, there's, it well, feels that, like there's always more. There's always more. And, and, and I, I need to hear that, that rabbi speak to this, but I, I'll mention first that, you know, that is a valid question, you know, because, you know, when I, if I hear one more white person say, I am not racist or addressing another white person saying that person is the least racist person <laughs> I know. And I'm going like, how can you, you have absolutely no idea of what you're saying, you know, and what you need to do is include in that conversation, someone who would know that. And that would have to be someone who is of any kind of minority who would have experienced, even being Jewish, by the way, would have experienced that kind of prejudice. And, and uh, you know, Pastor Rabbi Micah, talk to me. Well, Brother Kirk, I would say to be a person of faith, any faith means taking care not only of people like you, but thinking and acting on behalf of others who are fundamentally not like you. Um, I mean, we learn that from Moses, don't we? I mean, here's the prince of Egypt. He intervenes when he sees injustice, when Jethro's daughters are, be, are being harassed. And um, you just shared, you came out that you're expecting today. The, the real joy. heroes of civil disobedience, Shifra and Pua, the midwives, their job is to deliver babies, um, to help women give birth. And they they defy the Pharaoh's command to kill Hebrew infant boys. So here you have Egyptian women saving Jewish lives. Um, I mean, the examples in the Bible, you want to get to the Bible, to the bigger picture, we just have to be honest. It's easier for all of us to help save our own kin hmm. than people we don't know. And I'm not just talking race. I'm talking mm. comfort zone of anything, whether Culture. it's sex, gender. And maybe the big religious corrective, the real message of the Bible is you want to call yourself a person of faith, any faith, you better remember it means taking care of people who are not like you. And I think that's up. Uh, we as leaders need to say that more. Mm -hmm. By the way, um, uh, just in case you just tuned in, you're listening to Into the Mystic, which emanates from Crosstown, which is a place you need to see if you haven't seen it. You heard from Micah, Rabbi Micah Greenstein. You heard from Scott Morris, Joie Marseille, better known as Joy Marseille, and uh, Joshua Narcisse. I'm Kirk Whalem, and our special guest musician. Uh, is the great Johnny Pineda. Joy, just tell me, you know, it, when I first said that thing uh, at, at the beginning of this segment, um, you know, what, what did that, did that bring out anything in you in terms of, um, um, well, just whatever comes to your mind. But. Around 
Can you be more more specific? So, you know, (laughs) just in terms, Joy, of, you know, someone bringing out a holy book, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which speaks authoritatively to so many things and so much of life. But then now here we are face to face with an issue where you're like, well, hold on a second. You just call in question my very being by that book you're holding. Right. I think, I mean, this is true for any holy text. Any text in general, but definitely holy text. And there's just so much interpretation, like, involved. Um, there are people I've heard of who say it says it explicitly. Other people say it never says it explicitly. And everything in between, from what I've understood growing up, it was always so explicit. The sexuality, man and woman, all of that. Um, and in my own reading, in my own studying, I found that there's actually very little about it um, in the in the text. Um, most of what is talked about, from what I understand, is around love and is around um, expressing love in a way that's healthy and mutually beneficial. Um, I think there's an issue when any time when we make any one issue the problem, mm. um, and I think that that's happened a lot, especially around sexuality. I mean. One thing that the Bible is incredibly explicit about is uh, is sex before marriage in sections, right, in certain parts of the Bible. Um, but the same people who are often condemning um, often married gay couples for their behavior are the same people who are often turning a blind eye to, I mean, forget healthy, loving unmarried couples. I mean, turning a blind eye to to sexual abuse in the church or saying, turning a blind eye to um, rape on college campuses or turning a blind eye to, I mean, really, really toxic masculinity and toxic femininity in our populations. It's like you just cannot talk about, in my view, you cannot talk about um, sexuality and gender expression without also talking about um sexual misconduct, I mean, in an aggressive way, um, and, and, and gender misappropriation um, in that, I mean, toxic masculinity, toxic femininity, where you create, like you said, Scott, you, you take something that's supposed to be good, um, which femininity is good, masculinity is good, men are good, women are good, those who are non-gender conforming are good, like that people are just, there's something beautiful about everybody, um, but then you take it and you use it as a system of power. Um, how can we demonize a group um, and angelify another group? Well, you know, Joy, the, the, the thing that you say just now so clearly and, and then sort of undergirded by what Scott mentioned about power dynamic, right? And how can we isolate that? from Scripture, as opposed to, for instance, isolating. Of course, Josh, I want to ask you about this since you went to Yale, brother. Um, <laughs> instead of isolating something that Paul said that, um, you know, that again can be understood in a few different ways. Now, we're not even talking about interpretation, but just say that, you know, okay, if we do a little homework, and I've been f- fortunate to read four really good books about this, Um, you know, one written by one of the foremost Christian ethicists in the country, uh, David Gushy. And, 
you know, if we were to drill down, and if you're going to take the magnifying glass out, what if we were to not use that in ways that that um, not only offend but just crush people? But if we were to use that mag- magnifying glass to talk about themes that that are, you know, that 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 bring life and themes that uh, that lift people up. And again, the difference between, you know, we talk about now this, this sort of power dynamic issue. I mean, you had to have had several semesters at Yale on that stuff. <laughs> well, I don't even want to start at Yale. I want to start with The Wire, which is one of my favorite TV shows. If you have not watched it, I, I watched it over the holidays as my kind of binge watching project. There's a character named Slim Charles, who's a DC native and a go-go band um, leader, who says in the series, if it's a lie, we're going to fight on that lie. Hmm. And it's said in the context of this war between two rival crews trying to control the drug trade in Baltimore, right? And said, if it's a lie, we're going to fight on that lie. And in a lot of ways, we have taken homosexuality as the you know, the only thing that matters, we've elevated it as this central issue. We've told a lie to ourselves and we've committed, grounded ourselves in fighting on this lie. By we, I'm meaning particularly the Protestant mainline churches, right? Um, we've committed to fighting on this lie as if it is the only thing that matters. I think of um, William Barber, who talks about if you go through the Bible, um, what you're not going to see is a whole bunch of references to homosexuality. You're going to see a whole bunch of references to uh, caring for the widow, the orphan, feeding the poor. And if you were to go through and remove every one of those references, guess what happens to the Bible? It falls apart. We have told a lie and committed to that lie. Um, and it's been to our detriment because it has stopped us from fully un from a Christian perspective, right, fully following after Christ, fully following after one who looked at everyone whom was outside the circle that was drawn and drawn as normal and said, you are the one I want to speak to be with. You're the one I want to go to. Um, final reference as I'm rolling around these different things popping in my head. Um, no, but on that one, how, how did that, how has that happened? The, the what lie? it means to be a follower of Christ and to, what what about the church or people reclaiming what it's about? What you were saying, it's about love and not power. And I mean, how does this position on homosexuality determine whether you love Jesus? Right. right. I mean, how do right. we get to where that is the thing that determines if you love Jesus? Really? I don't think so. Well, what is your thought on that? How I do we mean, change the narrative to the truth from the lie? I know it's reinforced by some people. I think that for me, and it's kind of big picture ethereal in a sense, um, is that we've got to change our definition of faith, right? So much, at least for the folks that loved me and and raised me and and nurtured me in my Christian upbringing, faith meant certainty. And now that I'm at my big age of 27, I've found out that faith is not about certainty. Faith is about the courage to look into the unknown 
and know that you are walking with one who holds your hands and who holds all things together, right? If we begin to shift and say faith isn't about turning around three times and everything's going to be better, seeing one popular preacher has a clip out saying that this is going to be the best year of your life ever. I would never say anything about that, <laughs> anything like that. Faith isn't about certainty. Faith is about the courage to look into the unknown and not be terrified because God is with you. And that means then I don't have to be afraid of someone who's different, someone who doesn't look like me, love like me, or talk like me. It means I can engage them on an equal level because they what, what I know about them is limited. What they know about me is limited. But when we come into this encounter on equal footing and equitable footing, we open up that space of relationship and dialogue that I think God desires, right? He's the guy that kept on having dinner parties and keeping the party going, right? He, he was about human relationship. And if we can make that first step, I think that's the um, one path forward. Preach it, Joshua. Yeah. You got it, man. <laughs> that's good. All right, Kirk, take us out with another song, man. And this uh, this song, you know, as usual, uh, God is in control of all of this, uh, that we get to segue into the very message uh, that I think sums up a lot of what we've said, articulated beautifully by the, no way this guy is 27, but by the 27-year-old Joshua Preacher. Uh, and that is... You know, you can look into the abyss, look into the unknown and be certain of one thing. And that's that there is someone who loves you exactly like you are. Right. That there is someone who loves beyond all of these conversations that we're having. You're breathing. You're loved. You, whoever and whatever and however you are, you are loved and that you can depend on, dare we say, lean on. That person, that divinity, again, I'm a Christian, I'm going to say Jesus. Um, in a room with a, a guy will tell you that Yahweh will be the one who will never let you down. You can lean on God. I think that's a great way to go out. Of your knees, that you won't let.
first call on your brother when you need a friend we all need somebody to lean on i just might have a problem that you understand we all need somebody to lean on lean on me So if that doesn't speak to your gypsy soul, <laughs> I don't know what will. And I think a good place for us to leave here uh, is to meditate on this one question. Again, maybe we won't figure it all out. Maybe no faith tradition has it, quote unquote, all figured out in terms of where you are, in terms of any of these questions that we posed. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. We know that God is good and righteous and holy and just and merciful. But those issues remain sometimes obscure, opaque, at least to us. So here's a question to meditate on. Are you a person that anybody, and I mean anybody, can lean on?
I would submit to you that the first step for each of us is to have eyes to see, that we can see the person right next to us sometimes who is in need of something or someone to lean on, just to see them. And then are we, in French we say, disponible? Disponible. Are you available and willing to be someone that they can lean on? Thanks for joining us in the Mystic. See you next time.